As we uh, kind of continue this little mini-series in Selected Psalms, I guess you'd have to spell selected with a P also, um, uh, just kind of this gap between finishing Ecclesiastes and, and starting uh, Advent, um, it seems appropriate from time to time to, to spend a, a few weeks or even a week uh, here and there uh, in various psalms. And so this morning, uh, we will look at Psalm uh, 130. Uh, let me ask if you're able to stand as we read God's Word together. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. The grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would be at work in and through this Word. Uh, You've inspired it to be written. Uh, You have preserved it for us. And uh, we need it now to take root in our own hearts and our own lives, that we might honor and glorify Christ. Uh, We pray all of this in His name. Amen. You may be seated. So I assume you remember... Uh, And if you don't remember because you haven't seen it, well, then shame on you. But I assume you remember the scene in The Princess Bride uh, when it's got to come back to The Princess Bride eventually. Um, When when Wesley, the man in black, has been captured, he was knocked out. And then when he wakes up, he's connected to this machine, literally called The Machine. And, and hanging over him is this really pale, scary-looking dude. The, the official character title is The Albino. And he's kind of healing him and trying to make him better. And, and Wesley looks up and says, where am I? And then in that, that which turned out to be a fake voice, the pit of despair. Don't even think of trying to escape. The walls are far too thick. Nobody's going to rescue you. Only the prince, the count, and I know where this is. He's turns out he's kind of down in this pit that's up under a tree. But do you ever have the feeling that your life is in the pit of despair? Do you ever go through those moments thinking, I just don't, I'm just, we might call them the doldrums. We might call them, you know, any sorts of, but those times when you just feel like, I'm in a pit and I can't get out. I'm in a pit and I can't find the rope, the ladder, whatever it is that I need in order to be delivered from this pit. And you're convinced. I mean, when don't even think of trying to escape, I won't because I know there is no escape. And even when the albino says, don't think of being rescued because nobody knows where this is, you sometimes feel like that too. I'm so in the pit that nobody knows even how to find me. I'm alone and 
hopeless and in the pit of despair. That sense that the misery of this life is so great that you just feel trapped. Maybe it's the things going on around you. Sometimes it's it's externally imposed or it's because of maybe you put too much hope and confidence in the things around you. Sometimes it's internally caused. It's internally created. It may be a secret, private sin that nobody else knows about and the weight of it just hangs on your shoulders and weighs you down. For that matter, you want to talk about the pit of despair. Hide sin from loved ones. Because then you're constantly doing this battle with not only am I guilty, but now the shame and the, the, the guilt. Not only have I sinned against someone, but the shame and the guilt of hiding it from other people now weighs me down even more and makes it ten times worse. This psalm is written for people in the pit of despair. Notice where the psalm begins. He begins in the depths. And, and we're going to sing Psalm 130 in just a few minutes. And, and I'll explain, well, I'll explain then the, the changes they've made to the first two uh, stanzas of that song over the years. But he uses a word here, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And he uses a word that reflects drowning. You're literally underwater and surrounded by water and you can't catch your breath. There's no way to. But notice Notice why he's in these depths, in this pit of despair. Look at verses 3 and 4. Verse 3. He knows the pain and anguish of the guilt of his sin. He recognizes that if God kept a record of wrongs, no one could stand. He recognizes that that. He's affected by his iniquities and not by external problems or pains. It's not other people. It's not political events. It's not war and famine or COVID. It's his iniquities. It's his sin. It's his guilt. And he he recognizes that God doesn't keep a record of these things because if he did, no one would stand a chance. You know those dartboards that have the, the doors that close. You open the doors, and there's a dartboard in the middle. On the left side is the darts, the two different colors, one for each team. On the right side is a chalkboard with a line down the middle, so you can keep score. You're throwing darts. You're, you know, whatever. You can stop anytime you want to. You can go eat, because when you come back, there's the score on the right side of the door. You can, you can decide it's just too late, and we're done, and going home, going to bed, and you can come back tomorrow and play, and, and you know where you because there's the score right there on that right side door. God doesn't have that door. God doesn't have that, that chalkboard. God doesn't have that ledger where he's keeping track of the sins of his people. If he did, all men everywhere would not be able to stand. Now, of course, we know that no man anywhere can stand in and of himself. The psalmist anticipates a merciful and gracious God, not 
A God who is absent, not a God who just doesn't care, not a God who sweeps sin under the rug like it never happened, but a God who's already dealt with that sin in some other form or fashion. And notice verse 2. His need. And the way out of this pit isn't a rope. It's not a, it's not a ladder. It's not lowering a tree branch. It's not, it's not reaching down to someone uh, and then pulling them out of this pit. That No man can drop some physical thing down into this pit for his freedom. What he needs is God's mercy. Only God's mercy can deliver him from this depth of woe, from this de- de- uh, pit of despair. And so the writer of the psalm has come face to face with his sin and his guilt and recognizes that what he needs is God's mercy. And that apart from that mercy, he would absolutely, surely die. But what would have caused the psalmist to recognize this? Why is the psalmist feeling this weight, this depth, this pit, and this need for mercy? Well, we actually know because notice how the psalm begins. And and again, a song of ascents is verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible. There are 15 uh, psalms that the, uh, the Jewish people would sing in their annual pilgrimage back to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices for sin. And uh, they begin in... 120, I guess, and end in 134. And so this is number 11 of those 15 psalms. And so you can imagine that as the the people are migrating from their homes towards Jerusalem, towards the temple, the closer and closer you get. Because see, from from every direction, Jerusalem is an ascent. It sits up on a plateau. It sits up on a hill. So it doesn't matter what direction you're coming from, you still have to go uphill to get there. And as they get closer and closer, the shadow of the temple perhaps, singing their way through the songs, psalms of ascent, the crowd grows. You, you know this. You've, you've seen this in other settings. It usually means like when you... When you go to a college football game, you can leave your house. Remember growing up as a kid having season tickets to Clemson football. You can leave your house in Columbia, and there's lots of Clemson fans in Columbia, but they're not so concentrated. You can head up I-26. You can head down I-85. And as you get off at Anderson on Highway 76 or whichever direction you're coming from to head into Clemson, everybody there is a Clemson fan. Stickers and flags and horns and windows rolled down and cheering with each other and tiger paws on the road. You can sort of sense the anticipation knowing I'm getting closer and closer to Clemson. I'm getting closer and closer to that stadium. 
that's where the psalmist is as he's singing Psalm 130. He's getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. He's getting closer and closer to the temple. And he's getting closer and closer to that act of resting his hand on the head of a goat. And that goat having his neck slit, his throat slit, his blood shed, his blood sprinkled on you for forgiveness for your sin. I'm about to go lay my hands on this animal whose blood will be shed for my sin. And I'm going to lay my hands on another goat that's going to be run out of town. And, and that's the scapegoat. That's the one removing sin far from me. Just as God removes my guilt even in my wickedness. And so for the psalmist in the shadow of the temple, in the light of God's holiness and God's presence, he's feeling the depth, the weight of his sin, and it drives him to this pit of despair. The pilgrim is caused to consider just why he's on this pilgrimage to begin with. Why he needs the temple. Why he needs this blood sacrifice. And he knows that no man stands before God if he keeps a record of wrongs. But he also knows that there's forgiveness. He also knows, verse 4, he's not left to his own sin. With you there is forgiveness. He's not left without hope. He's not left in the mire of the pit of his, of his despair. But he recalls God's promises. He recalls this assurance of forgiveness. We frequently, uh, after our confession of sin, will have a, an assurance of pardon. And it frequently comes from the Old Testament. Forgiveness isn't a New Testament concept. It's a whole Bible concept. It's a, it's a work of God in our lives concept. So don't think of the God of the Old Testament as this mean, hateful, difficult ogre. And the God of the New Testament, well, that's where the love and the kindness is. There's forgiveness and the psalmist recognizes that there is forgiveness with God. That goat that he's going to deal with in the temple is merely a shadow of the greater lamb, the true lamb who's come to take away the sins of the world. He anticipates and longs for that forgiveness. But the distance between him and God in this moment, at least in that, that sense of his despair, that sense of his guilt, isn't measured in feet or miles or steps. You can't measure it with a Fitbit. It's measured in years. The distance of the greater lamb. He's still looking ahead. The psalmist is looking to the day when the, the greater uh, lamb will come and be sacrificed for the sins of his people. But that's, you know, his, his trip is measured in steps. His trip is measured in, in miles but the distance of this promised Messiah is measured in years. 
And notice in verses 5 and 6, the singer of this song knows forgiveness en route to Jerusalem. And he's on his way to celebrate that forgiveness. And yet, he waits. He's waiting for the Lord. He's hoping in God's Word. See, the Psalms are written hundreds of years before Christ would come. Hundreds of years before the greater Lamb would come and and bleed and die and accomplish the salvation of His people. And so he knows that what he's doing is a shadow, a type, a foretaste. And so in many ways, though he acts, he waits for the Lord. What does waiting look like? So, so in our house, we have a, a regular constant conflict. Because we don't all agree on what waiting looks like. Uh, for Nancy, waiting means I'm swiffing, swiffer. I mean, it's a swiffer. So do you swift? Is swift the verb? What's the verb? You know, or I'm wiping countertops. And frequently she'll say, look, I'm ready to go whenever y'all are. If you're waiting on me, I mean, don't wait for me. I'm ready. We're all sitting in the den looking at each other, doing absolutely nothing. Because that's how we are. And we all kind of look at each other like, I'm pretty sure we're the ones waiting. You're doing stuff. We are, by definition, waiting. You are, by definition, not waiting. That's not the way waiting works in the Bible. Waiting in the Bible isn't an, a, an actless act. It's not a sit still and do absolutely nothing. The psalmist calls an active waiting an active anticipation of the promised Messiah. It's doing the work we've been called to do all with an eye towards and an expectation of the coming of Christ. The waiting of the psalmist isn't sitting and doing nothing. It's an active waiting. His soul waits for the Lord as he marches hundreds of miles to Jerusalem to sacrifice a goat. That's what a watchman does. Watchman stands on the wall, especially that, that last watch of the night. It's not quite as long as the rest. And he knows the sun is going to come up. And so he watches with expectation and anticipation, knowing that his watch will come to an end, that the sun will indeed rise. And it's in the promised word of God that we are to hope. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I hope. And there's another word we don't use right. For us, hope, we use the word hope and, and typically mean wish or sure would love or wouldn't it be cool if. Right? That's the way we use hope. Again, the Bible is a, a guarantee. It's not hope as in wishful thinking. It's not hope as in... I sure would love to. It's hope as in, I'm just waiting for the guaranteed thing that God has promised to happen. He said it would, and now I'm 
waiting and anticipating for it to come about. Hope is a a confident expectation of God accomplishing what he has promised. In other words, the writer knows, the psalmist knows that God keeps his promises. He knows there's coming a day when sin will be dealt with finally and completely and permanently. Of course, you and I live on the other side of the cross. he's, He's before Jesus. We're after Jesus. We look back to the completion of our salvation. And yet we still wrestle. We still, even looking back, even with the the more certainty of living after the person and work of Christ, we still struggle with sin. We still struggle with our own pit of despair. Are we daily aware of our need for God's mercy? For the forgiveness found in Christ? You know, I wonder sometimes whether we have the same kind of anticipation on the Lord's Day when we as God's people drive from wherever it is you live, whatever part of whatever county you live in, and there are three at least in this room. Whether you don't drive up with some sense of anticipation and hope and longing, Not so much for where you're going, but for what you're about to do. In other words, and I I get it, the physical setting here doesn't really lend it. It's not exactly Israel's temple. It's not exactly the psalmist's temple. Big, giant, stone, imposing structure that you could see for miles away. This isn't exactly that. And yet what we do is no less meet with God than what the psalmist anticipated for himself. Do we drive here on Sunday morning with that kind of anticipation, with that kind of hope, with that kind of expectation that we too wait with anticipation the return of Christ, just as He has promised to do, to bring full completion of our salvation, to rid us not just from the the penalty and the power of sin, but even from its very presence. The psalmist anticipates, and it's that act. It's where he's going, but it's because of what he's going to do when he gets there. It's not the physical structure of the temple It's the gathering of God's people around Christ. But what's the result of forgiveness? Because there appears to be both a personal and a corporate, a private and a public result of forgiveness. Notice in verse 4, With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And again, the word fear for us typically... It's the way I feel about snakes. Uh, the only kind of good snake is a dead snake. I'm just, I don't, I'm not going to take the time. I'm not going to ask questions. I'm not looking for pits or shapes of heads or anything. I'm looking for something to kill it with. Because they just scare me. I just don't do snakes. 
Some people don't do heights or flying or spiders or any number of things that we're afraid of. That's not what the psalmist means. It's not fear in the sense of I'm going to be squashed or this could hurt me. It's fear in the sense of reverence and awe. It's fear in the sense of worship. In other words, forgiveness for sin should fuel our relationship with God. Forgiveness for sin, a recognition and an understanding that we are forgiven in Christ should actually fuel worship. It should fuel reverence and awe before God. That's the private, personal result of forgiveness. There's also a corporate result. Look at verse 7. Notice the language isn't just for individuals, but he changes in verses 7 and 8 to a more corporate response. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. With him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This pilgrimage to Jerusalem isn't just an individual event. It's a corporate event. All of God's people are traveling together. Okay, they're not necessarily traveling together from the start. But the closer you get to where you're going, the more concentrated the travelers will be. And they will all be going there together. And what starts off feeling like an, as an individual event or even a family event really is ultimately a church event, a corporate event. It's just like seeing all that Clemson stuff on the cars as you get off of I-85, seeing the tiger paws on the road on Highway 123 or 76. You just know you're getting closer and the closer you get, the more of you there are. And so the psalmist looks at Israel, the nation, and says, look, there's, there's encouragement from each other. We benefit from each other's presence. We benefit from each other's forgiveness. We benefit from believers around us. There's a, a corporate benefit to the way we sing and to what we sing. And here the psalmist, who's personally come to realize his own standing as a forgiven sinner in the sight of God, now turns his attention outward to his brothers and sisters. And he calls them to faith right alongside with him. In other words, there's usefulness for those who have been forgiven within the body of Christ. That goes against everything we think when we're in the pit of despair, doesn't it? When you're in the pit of despair, when you're in the pit because of sin, because of some glaring issue in your life, the last thing you want is to be with other people. Every smile, every glance your way, every look on their face, every giggle or laugh, you think they know. They know. And they're talking about me. There are two people standing over there in the corner. And I just know it. They're talking about me. 
They can't possibly be talking about meeting space for a church. They can't possibly be talking about the football games. They can't possibly. They have to be talking about me. And so we stay away. We put our arms up and hold people at a distance. We think that the last thing we think is I've got to go hang out with these other Christians so I can encourage them. We think I have nothing to encourage them with. I have absolutely no hope. And you know what? They probably know. And so they're going to be looking at me funny. When you're in the pit, that's the way we feel. Shame and guilt make us paranoid. Shame and guilt make us question everything on the look and and the tone of voice and text messages, everything from others around us. And yet the psalmist says, out of the depths, out of the pit of despair, I cry to you, O Lord. Hear my plea for mercy. I know there's forgiveness. Hey, Israel, hope in the Lord. Hey, Israel, God will redeem all your iniquities. Notice the picture in this psalm. It's precisely because you've experienced the pit. It's precisely because you've experienced the depths of shame and guilt that you are now useful in the kingdom. You have something to offer people. You have encouragement. You have hope that they need. And it's precisely because you've been in that pit that you can encourage others. You can point them to Christ for their forgiveness. The next time you're in the pit and you hear the enemy saying, don't even think of trying to escape. The walls are far too thick. And don't think of being rescued either because only the prince, the count, and I know how to get in. You look at him and tell him, I'm forgiven by Christ. Your words have no power over me. Remind yourself of who Jesus is and what he's done and the deliverance he gives from the pit of despair. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that there is forgiveness with you. That in Christ there is hope. There is assurance of deliverance from the penalty of sin. That you will no longer hold it over our heads. That those who turn in faith to Christ will no longer have to look at that chalkboard that says... Here's what you've done bad and here's what you've done good and the bad is a lot bigger than the good. There's no record. That record has been cast on Christ. Nailed to the cross. We thank you that you are at work even now that as we grow in grace, you're delivering us more and more from the very power of sin. May it be that as we are freed from the pit of despair by your mercy and grace, we would grab the hands of others and point them to Jesus and say, there's the hope, there's the confidence, there's the mercy, there's the deliverance from the pit. 
And Father, may that be the pattern of our lives until that day comes when we are finally and completely delivered from even the very presence of sin itself. All to the honor and glory of Christ our Savior. Amen.